the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? Well, we're talking today about Chinese disinformation. So we all know now, I think polls show 77% of Americans recognize that it was communist China that is responsible for the spread of the virus around the world. And China is unhappy with this. And so they have launched a global campaign of lies, pressure and disinformation around the world. The European Union had a report uh, that they prepared, which had very mild criticism of Beijing. And uh, the Chinese complained and they edited out all the criticism of China. They did the same thing uh, in Australia, your your motherland. My motherland. Uh, that the Australians were pushing for an international investigation and they started putting pressure on the Australians to drop it. And the Australians, what did they tell them, Danny? They told them to get stuffed and bugger off. <laughs> <laughs> Mark just likes so to give me these of opportunities. getting stuffed and buggering off, Danny, what are your thoughts? <laughs> Why, thank you, Mark. What a beautiful introduction. It, it's absolutely fascinating. I think that the period that has elapsed between the end of the Cold War and now has enabled a lot of people to forget what disinformation really is mm-hmm. and how pervasive it is. And even when we talk about issues like Russian interference in our elections and the way that Russia seeks to interfere, which is to amplify disagreement, to amplify false stories, people's Facebook pages, Twitter, bots, you know, troll farms, those sorts of things. We don't actually think about that as disinformation. And of course, that's what it is. Classic lies propagated by a government for a whole variety of purposes. And the Chinese, you know, there are 1.4 billion Chinese. There are a lot of people in China who are capable of propagating this sort of information. In addition, of course, China owns TikTok. Mm-hmm. China is extremely adept at manipulating social media. I would say that they, they may even be better than the Russians. And so what we've seen the Chinese do is the first thing they do, the New York Times had a pretty good story on this. <laughs> first time you've heard me say that. And Mark is going to nod because... He, I know, saw the story and agrees. The New York Times had a pretty good story about how right at the beginning of the outbreak of the virus here in the United States, there were these, I would say, sort of borderline hysterical messages that the president was going to lock down the nation and that the National Guard was going to be deployed and that people were going to be forced at gunpoint into their homes. Stores were going to be shut. And the stories may well have originated with Americans, but... There were Chinese bots and others that were amplifying that story and scaring people. You're absolutely right, Danny, that there's all this like disinformation like we saw in the Russian elections and the amplifying and all the rest. But a lot of it's coming directly and unabashedly from the Chinese government. The foreign ministry spokesman has tweeted out that the virus came from the American army and from soldiers who came to Wuhan. Uh, Wuhan in uh, you know for some in October uh, in October for some games. The Chinese ambassador just had a column in the Washington Post, and I the Chinese I, ambassador ambassador the, to the U.S. The Chinese ambassador to the United States column in the Washington Post, in which he just views lie after lie after lie. He says first China has taken strict measures to and made huge sacrifices to keep the virus in check. China has done its best to share information about the virus. On December twenty seventh, a doctor in Ubei province reported three suspicious cases. 
that doctor was arrested. I mean, literally, he's now turned into a hero, but he was a whistleblower. He takes credit for the fact that they shared the genome of the virus. It was actually a lab in Shanghai that did it, and they shut down the lab after they did it. So, I mean, they literally lie through their teeth, and they even had the Chinese government actually prepared a cartoon video that they put out. It's called Once Upon a Virus and has two Lego characters. One's a Chinese terracotta warrior and the other's the Statue of Liberty arguing about the virus. Listen to this. December. Strange pneumonia cases reported. Roger that. January. We discovered a new virus. So what? It's dangerous. It's only a flu. Wear a mask. Don't wear a mask. Stay at home. It's violating human rights. Building temporary hospitals. It's a concentration camp. Built in 10 days. Show off. Time to lock down. How barbaric. February. It's overwhelming our medical system. Look how backward China is. The virus is killing doctors. Typical third world. So, I mean, they're, they're not hiding it, Danny. They're, they're using... No, it's, it's, quite, it's quite remarkable. This story that they put out about a U.S. soldier that attended some games of some kind in, in Wuhan in October being the source of the virus is so pernicious. And to boot, they're not just selling this story in the United States. They're selling this story all over the world. What happens is this Zhao, this foreign ministry spokesman, makes a particular statement. He is then amplified by all of Chinese embassies around the world, Mm -hmm. all of China's mouthpieces, and all of Chinese consulates. And state media. And state media, uh, which we also don't pay enough attention to because the Chinese state media is as bad as Russia TV. And they also are putting this out in different languages. So they're putting it out in Europe. They put out a video to the Middle East in Arabic propagating this story as well. You know, this is just... I mean, I, I don't want to say it's outrageous because that sounds completely silly and, and naive. But this it's is outrageous. <laughs> but 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 the American people need to be much much more aware of what this is. You know, if you ask the American people what's Al Jazeera, anyone who pays attention to foreign policy will say it's the mouthpiece of the Qatari government. It's pretty sympathetic to terrorists. You ask people what CGTV is, and they'll say, uh, don't know. So, you know, here's the thing that we're we're discovering is that communist regimes have been lying from time immemorial. You go back to Stalin and they the famous, you know, they, there was even once a coffee table book I almost I bought. Have it. Oh, do you? Yes. Oh, it's awesome. It's showing how they used to airbrush. Before there was airbrushing, it was literally cutting and pasting and using crayons to draw. Uh, and they would take somebody who had fallen out of favor. Like one of Stalin's close aides goes to the gulag. And so they cut him out of all the official pictures and put somebody else in. And then that guy dies. He gets taken out. And so you could see these pictures evolve from the original to the second version, the third, the fourth, the fifth. And, you know, you wonder what Stalin would have done with Photoshop and with Twitter and all these other things. But, you know, the Chinese regime... I think a lot of people, especially younger people, grew up in an age where China was embracing free market economics and people were saying, oh, free market economics is going to change the country. It's going to become more democratic. We're going to have a better relationship with them. And it turns out that they got rid of the Marx, but they didn't get rid of the Leninism. Right. And this is what Leninist regimes do. And we have a new generation of Americans now that are being educated in the lies and disinformation of a Leninist totalitarian regime. Right. Vigilance is the word. People really need to understand. You had an interesting theory about this, and then I want to turn to our guest. One a theory, of the things, uh, you a theory, theory, which is mine? And now my theory by Mark Thiessen. <laughs> Thank now you. Now my theory. It is mine. It is my theory. That's a riff in, in Monty Python that Mark and I and everyone we know loves. So right, enough about you. Apo- my theory. <laughs> Go ahead, Danny. Tell me my theory. Your theory. 
Which is yours. <laughs> Very interesting theory. Your theory about this is that this is a relatively new phenomenon that we've seen, a real escalation by the Chinese, and that it is rooted not necessarily in a Chinese feeling of strength on the world stage, but a Chinese feeling of weakness. Absolutely. I think the regime is terrified, not as so much of us, but of its own people. So if the U.S. accusations, you know, as much as they, there's no Twitter in China, they control the internet, but information gets through in this day and age. And the more and more that the United States and other countries put out reports, especially the European Union reports of their objective investigations that show this, not only that this originated in Wuhan, which everybody knows, but the Chinese government tried to cover it up, that they prevented the world from addressing it, that they lied to to their own people for months about the dangerousness, the fact that it had human-to-human transmission, this is going to really destabilize the Chinese regime. I'm not suggesting that there's going to be a popular uprising in China and we're going to have a democratic revolution and it's going to be Tiananmen Square all over again before the crackdown. But Xi Jinping, as our scholars here, like, like Dan Blumenthal and, and Derek Scissors have talked about, he's really changed the Communist Party into a cult of personality, much like the old Soviet regimes used to be. And, you know, the leaders in the Chinese Communist Party used to be, if you fell out of favor, you'd go to your dacha and you'd have your money and you'd just fall out of public life, but you'd be left undisturbed. Now they're getting charged with corruption. They're getting thrown in jail. You know, if you're out of favor with Xi, that means there's a lot of resentment and a lot of pressure on Xi internally within the Communist Party. And if he is seen as mismanaging this, and if he is seen as having caused a rift in relations with the world, and if he's seen as having lied to the people and there's popular anger, it could really endanger him. Well, let's hope so. We've got a perfect guest to talk to about this. General Dave Stilwell, he's the Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs. But prior to taking that uh, wear a pinstripe suit job, he served in the Air Force for 35 years. He actually enlisted as a Korean linguist, which is amazing. And he's since actually learned Chinese as well. He retired at the rank of Brigadier General as the Asia Advisor, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. But he served multiple tours of duty in Japan and Korea. And he was our defense attache in Beijing as well. So we're pretty lucky to have him. Well, General Steelwell, Dave, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, we're really delighted that you're able to take the time given everything that's going on. And you really are in one of the hottest of the hot seats in the U.S. government dealing with not just the challenge of coronavirus and all that that involves, but, of course, the role that China has played in all of this. And then, like the icing with a cherry on top, we've got all that fun stuff going on in North Korea. So we've got <laughs> so much to talk to you about. I know we won't have enough time. And to think this time last year, I was uh, surfing with my buddies in Hawaii, never expecting we would be here. But, you know, in my opinion, we will leave North Korea off that for now. But, you know, this is a reckoning that needed to happen. And, you know, I think that things are moving in the positive direction. Unfortunately, you know, with the coronavirus part, that really you know, just unbelievably unfortunate and preventable problem. So happy to discuss. Well, one of the things that you've talked about, and I think is a great place for us to start, is about Chinese disinformation. Because from the get-go, part of the challenge that the U.S. government has faced in trying to help Americans deal with the health challenge is just getting information out of the Chinese. And that situation has neither improved, and in fact, not just not improved, but the Chinese are actively 
trying to steer the conversation in dangerous directions. Can you talk a little bit about the disinformation challenge? You bet. And I would say that is our biggest challenge uh, in all of this, because, you know, it all stems from the form of governance that you choose, one that trusts the people and allows the people to think and share ideas, and that allows them to express those concerns up by only a one-way conversation that goes from top down. And so the disinformation works in the PRC because of the system they have. Unfortunately, it has worked for far too long outside of the PRC as well. And it's the nature of our system. You know, I don't like it, but the chance to um, speak openly like this to you and to others, to media that don't necessarily share my opinions, is important. And being able to, now that we have the world's attention, identify how this came to happen. And it came to happen because the system, as we saw with uh, the Soviets, as we saw in the book 1984, doesn't allow information to flow freely. So that's what began. That's how it started, is that we had a relatively minor public health issue in Wuhan, but because people who tried to talk about it were silenced, and that information was either destroyed or diverted again, prevented the Chinese from responding soon enough, which got the rest of us sick. Since then, we've had uh, an active disinformation campaign that started off saying it wasn't here. It didn't happen in China. By the way, they started off calling it the Wuhan virus, I mean, in Chinese. (laughs) So I think it would be actually worthwhile for folks to hear. Give us some examples, some specifics of what it is that the Chinese are up to, because it's not just a false narrative, is it? I mean, they're playing a whole bunch of different cards. The first one, and you're right on that, the first one is a complete asymmetry in information. Just as, you know, you or any American can, you can listen to China Radio International, or you can listen to CGTN or or RT, but you can also look at your own preferred media outlet. That's not the case in the PRC. And so what exacerbates this is the fact that they have basically full access to our system, and we have basically zero access to theirs. Now, that doesn't mean the Chinese people think that they are seeing the whole picture. They know they're being censored, and they know they're being cut off from the rest of the world, and they do amazing things, amazingly creative things to get access to that, to jump the firewall. And so, you know, kudos to the Chinese people for um, knowing what's happening there and for demanding access otherwise. Now, they're not going to get that access, and so they are doing things to get that access. One thing they do is... In China domestically, I'll talk about U.S. in a second, but domestically, they, you know, censorship is known and obvious, but they take snapshots of posts just as, as soon as they come up, knowing it's going to get taken down, and they still have a record of what was up there, and then they share those um, things around. And so that, again, you can't control information. You know, it's like water. It's going to leak out of your hands eventually. It is to everyone's interest to share information broadly, so you're not surprised later or having to explain later. As far as uh, disinformation in the U.S., you know that In January, we announced that Chinese media outlets, five of them, would be designated as foreign missions because that's what they are. You know, you and American media are pretty much responsible only to facts. You are judged by how well you report those facts. These are, as defined by foreign missions, they're um, responsible to the party to carry a message from the party to the American people. And, you know, that's not the intent. And so, they are free in this country to spread disinformation, and they are doing it at the behest of their government. So talk a little bit about, you know, there was an interesting story in the New York Times recently about how China has been borrowing Russia's strategies when it comes to uh, disinformation. And there was a specific story about they were spreading messages that the Trump administration was about to lock down the entire country and sort of spread panic here. 
Tell us about that incident and also what are they trying to accomplish with the disinformation campaign here in the United States? So discord and chaos and all those other things. And it's not just the Russians and the Chinese and the Iranians doing that. I mean, it, it, there's American citizens doing it. The era of social media presents us with an entirely different problem that we're going to have to figure out how to address. And my original point, that's back to education. We're going to have to um, teach you know our kids to approach everything with a critical eye. But you know, we have the problem of bots. We have computers that are hijacked that appear to be what they are not, appear to be human beings. We have trolls who pretty much take anything and present a very negative side to that. One of the things I'm trying to do is reach out to the Board of Education and others through a program called Hometown Diplomat that we used to have during the Cold War era that allowed foreign service officers to reach out to their folks back home and explain what it's like you know, to live overseas and to see these things from a distance. Uh, I've got a briefing put together now that identifies what a troll farm looks like and what bots look like and how Twitter is vulnerable to certain things. But you don't have to look far right now. The disinformation machine in the PRC is going full tilt. If you've seen what's coming out of the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs Twitter accounts, especially a guy named Zhao Lijian, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, one of the spokespeople, if you've studied the 15 logical fallacies, yeah, he uses them all, you know. <laughs> that, I mean, I, I think that's absolutely true. You know, just in the last week, we've seen the Chinese foreign ministry attack the government of Australia in ways, in more direct ways than in some ways they've attacked us, referring to Australia as the gum on the bottom of our shoe, because Australia has been critical, although they've also tried to disseminate this idea that the American military was responsible for bringing the virus to China. Yeah, the Australians, uh, I've got uh, great respect for them. You know, they started this whole process about five years ago. And this is all part of a much larger process that the Chinese Communist Party borrowed from the Soviets called United Front Work to infiltrate and guide and steer democratic systems because they're vulnerable and they're open. And so the prime minister of Australia looked at his own system to understand where it has been infiltrated. And boy, they were shocked what they found. If you read the book Silent Invasion that came out of that process, you, and you look at our own system and see that we too are vulnerable. And so we need to take uh, the thought in our democratic process more seriously. Uh, we have to defend it more ardently. And you just can't assume, as we have assumed in our own uh, system and in multilateral systems like the UN, that they are you know, running at the goodwill of all participants. There are those who are going to twist them and steer them in ways that serve their own purposes. And there's no doubt seeing what happened with the WHO and WTO and others that the PRC has not lived up to its obligations, is in fact using it to advance its own interests. So you've got a number of elements going on here at once. So you've got the Chinese regime that is trying to intimidate its own population, intimidate the doctors who who were reporting the facts about this and all the problems are related to that. And then you've got the disinformation that they're spreading both in their population and around the world. But you've also got this campaign of intimidation around the world that is really fascinating. You know, the Chinese uh, regime recently threatened Australia if they went forward with an investigation into the origins of the virus. And uh, the Australians basically told them where they could stick their uh, I think the expression we use in Australia, Mark, is bugger off. Yeah, they told them to bugger, <laughs> bugger off. But then the European Union recently had a uh, report where they've had 
very mild criticism of China, and they basically redacted and took it all out at China's request. So tell us a little bit about this global campaign of intimidation they're having, and what does it mean that you know Australia is standing firm, but you know European Union is a wet noodle? Well, it is not new, and it is only now uh, coming to light because countries like Australia and, and increasingly the U.S. are willing to do, as John Garneau from Australia says, uh, shine some sunlight on this problem. Basically expose it and show it. That's all you have to do. I mean, the battle is simple. It's just simply bringing to light these things that are happening. For too long, people have feared economic reprisals or worse, or, and I don't fault them, There are those who believe that through contact and exposure that the system would recognize the flaws in authoritarianism and adapt more democratic processes, as we saw in Korea, in Taiwan, we saw in Singapore and other places. So the key here is simply to identify it. However, this is one of those things where you need to hang together and countries need to feel confident that if they put their hand up and identify this problem, they won't suffer the economic, mostly uh, economic pain uh, alone, that they have support from others. And the U.S. has been very strong in offering that support. Uh, Recently, New Zealand came online as well to ask for an investigation through the WHO into the origins of the virus that came from Wuhan. Oh, that's going to go well. (laughs) Well, the WHO is going to lead it. (laughs) It could. It could. Um, with reform and uh, with a new sense of purpose to kind of rehone its you know, what it's there to do. And then given the negative press it's gotten recently, I think there's sufficient initiative there to change and get back to its original task, which was to keep the world healthy. As we saw some statements that came out early on telling us not to close our borders and not to overreact were very unhelpful, did not make the world healthier. And so I think the investigation that will flow from that both into what the Chinese did and how it happened that this virus exposed the whole world to such a risk and how the WHO exaggerated the risk instead of mitigating it. Those things will come in time. So one thing that has, I think, struck a lot of us is that, and maybe we're just late to this game, but the Chinese have changed their approach. That, you know, some years ago, China went on a massive charm offensive, you know, inviting businesses in, going out. Their diplomats were all over the place. I mean, they really, for years, it had been the Taiwanese who were the diplomatic darlings in most of these capitals because the Chinese were, you know, sort of Maoist thugs. And that image really went away, you know, at the beginning of this century. And that era seems to be done. The charm offensive seems completely finished and China has really taken, not just in this coronavirus issue, but on a whole variety of things, a far more aggressive approach to the world. Is that a Xi Jinping thing or what's going on in your view? I would point it to a couple of things. The biggest one is called POSO, the period of strategic opportunity. Back around in, in the 2000s, this idea was postulated inside the Chinese government that There's about 20 years here where we will have an opportunity to take advantage of all the, you know, that's these free markets and and the fact that people are willing to send businesses to the PRC. And then the margins will continue to shrink as labor costs go up and and our own economy takes off and it's heads toward middle income that the margins will become less and that period of strategic opportunity will slacken. Uh, That was part of it. We're getting toward the end of that now. The second part is in 2007, as the world financial crisis 
the PRC, in fact, and by their own narrative, came out of that stronger, and they took that as sort of validation for this system of authoritarian government on top of something like kind of a mixed market economy. The era of Xi Jinping has been pretty aggressive and seems to be accelerating the process of pushing China's newfound great power status, or as they said in the 19th Party Congress report, China's moving closer to the center of the, the global stage, demanding respect and all those things. You know, you're right. Under the Xi Jinping era, we've seen an acceleration of that. Didn't start then, though. Toward the end of the Hu Jintao period, you saw some of that. You know, I'm not demonizing them. They've done a, a good job. But where they've done those things in nefarious ways and, and ways that violate commitments, we have to point those out and say, no, you, you're not special. You have to comply with the things that keep this global system balanced and doesn't favor one side over the other. So it seems like China, Xi Jinping is doubling down on the Leninism and Marxism-Leninism. The response to this virus has been, you know, just lying to their people, trying to prevent news of the virus getting out, punishing doctors who spread word about it and warned about it. Those are not moves of a confident regime, in my view. How brittle is Xi Jinping's regime and his grip on power? Is he, why is he acting like he's so afraid? That is a great question. By all counts, the... You made Mark's day. (laughs) (laughs) He's taking a bow right now, even though you can't see him. (laughs) Uh, uh, You know, by all counts, things were going well. But, you know, during my time there, 11 to 13, you could see that, uh, you know, all was not well. This is part of a more competitive strategic environment that they're in. And it's it's definitely related to this Marxist-Leninist authoritarian approach. But these were just naturally occurring because their economy was booming for a time, but it was going to have to level off at some point. The grand bargain that they made with the people is that, you know, we're going to insist on authoritarianism and the continued rule of the Communist Party in exchange for your, you're going to get rich. Your children can look forward to a better life. And now that bargain isn't quite so ironclad that the chance of improving the lot of your children isn't what it used to be. So, you know, I would think that that would call for adapting their approach into something that better accounts for the voice of the people giving them a choice of who their leaders and who they're going to be and how they're governed. So, yes, um, things have changed recently. And the Chinese government is clearly much more afraid of its own people than it was when they were offering them their side of that bargain. You know, the harmonious rise that they offered and people aren't getting is is good reason for the government to be afraid of discontent. So should we be more worried about that as well? Is that going to manifest itself in the kind of aggression that we are seeing in all of these international institutions against us, against their neighbors, against the Australians as well? That is a really good point. And um, there's always the concerns about diversionary conflict and doing things, you know, stroking nationalism. We are seeing that now. This is what all that, all those Twitter back and forth you're seeing. The funny thing is you can't read Twitter in China. So you do wonder who they're messaging in this case, but similar messages are going out to their own folks. And look, I mean, they want to be proud of their culture and they very much should be. But the way they're conducting themselves uh, globally and, as you say, in their own country should be addressed. And the people are the best judges of that. And they, you know, their voices deserve to be heard. But as these things get more and more stressful and as this authoritarian Leninist system gets called greater into question and the domestic strains and the economic strains become greater, you're right. We need to be concerned about how that will manifest itself outside. 
the things we can do is to reinforce our own values, you know, and work closely with those who share our values in the region, allies, partners, and like-minded. We mentioned Australia earlier, you know, speaking up and saying we're not going to be bullied economically. And we should all be standing up and saying that and supporting them and demanding that the uh, PRC comply with the rules and laws and the things that they agree to with like WTO on topics of economic coercion. You're also seeing this uh, phenomenon, not in the EU per se, but in European countries, in Sweden, uh, Czech Republic, uh, France. You saw some strong statements there about how the PRC is being a little overly aggressive diplomatically. And so, you know, they're a learning organization. I, hopefully they will, you know, take a hint from this and rethink their approach. So we're going through what could be considered a pandemic Pearl Harbor right now. This virus came to our shores because the Chinese regime lied about it, suppressed information, and inhibited our response. Didn't share, uh, you know, the samples. You know, we're we're literally locked down in our country because of the totalitarian decisions of the Chinese regime, and the American people are unified on this in a way that almost no other topic uh, unifies them. I think 77% of Americans blame the Chinese regime for the spread of the virus, including 90% of Republicans and 69% of Democrats. So that's pretty strong bipartisan support. Is this an opportunity for us as a country to come around a new China policy? And what would that China policy look like? Absolutely. But I I want to start off with noting that tomorrow marks the beginning of uh, Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And this is a really good opportunity to reinforce among ourselves that this is not an Asian problem. It's not a Chinese people problem. It's not even a China problem. It's a governance problem, as you mentioned. It's a Leninist authoritarian system that allowed this thing to uh, spill outside the borders of the PRC. So I beg everybody, please, it's not about Asian people. Be especially conscious of that in, in the coming days because you know, the death toll is rising and the damage economically is going to be very hard to recover from. But the beautiful thing is, as you said, Once you get the American people on board and you get them motivated and united on something, there is no stopping us. Uh, And so as bad as all this is, I think, as you say, it will have uh, some benefits in uniting us and understanding and thinking what is most important today. I mean, hanging out with your friends and having a beer on a Friday afternoon. I mean, wouldn't we all love to do that right now? This is a hard time. And so some good will come from this, I believe. And uh, the approach of the Trump administration hasn't changed, and I don't think it will change. It has been this way from the start. If you saw what the president did with uh, after Mar-a-Lago with trade, for instance, they had the 100-day trade agreement. 100 days came and went, and there was no agreement. In the past, I was in uniform during previous administrations. We would have taken something less than what we'd asked for and then said we can work with them afterward. I mean, the president came in understanding what he was up against. And I mean, really, a strong negotiator walked away from that deal and walked away from them all until it was something that would benefit, you know, Americans writ large in a way that benefits both the PRC and and the U.S. So as far as um, changing the approach, I think the Trump administration is going to just continue the approach. I think people will be listening more closely. So when we talk about a new approach, uh, you know, one of the things the coronavirus has done is it has enabled us to focus a little bit on how dependent our supply chains are on China, whether it's for masks or PPE or medications. But really, we could that list could continue for quite a while. For most of us who believe in a free economy and free markets, the notion of buying cheap shoes from China is pretty cool. I'd rather get you know, my cheap shoes and my plastic stuff from China. On the other hand, you know, buying most of our antibiotics, our retrovirals, and others from China or 
from China via India seems kind of dangerous. Do you think there's going to be, and will you encourage a, a rethink of China's overwhelming role in supply chains? Is it time to build guardrails around where they really over-dominate? Absolutely. And we've known this. We've known this for a long time. You know, in my early days uh, investing, I, I learned about the word diversify. You know, don't put all your money in one thing. You know, diversify. That way, if well, one stock takes a hit, the others will carry you through. But the lure of the Chinese market and the, the cheap manufacturing processes and all those things, look, that lure has been there since Lord McCartney showed up on the shores of China in 1790. And honestly, the PRC tried to do that, to develop monopoly control on pretty much anything they could, because that gives them power to manipulate others to do what they would prefer. So this is going to be a wake-up call. I think their conversation is already happening. And I'll tell you what, one thing that set alarm bells off in my head is in 2017 at Davos, Xi Jinping went there and the world hailed him as the leader of globalization. Uh, That was incredible. I remember that. (laughs) And anybody who understands the PRC knows just how ridiculous that whole concept was. The second part is that to think of globalization as, you know, a complete good with no downside is also naive. There are things you'd have to do. You have to protect strategic industries. You have to protect those things that you absolutely need, that if there was a shutdown in transportation or a political uh, crisis, that you would have to be able to. And, And look, that's obvious, as you mentioned now. But that doesn't mean we have to onshore everything. And there are some things that we can share with, you know, Canada, Mexico, with like-minded. You know, in my AOR, you know, Southeast Asia has huge advantages in these things. Let's just diversify. Let's look at where we can take uh, manufacturing and markets and spread them out in ways that make more sense. And this has made that an obvious outcome. I know Mark and I are going to be really eagerly watching the administration, you know, roll out a continuation of that approach and, and the sort of erecting of those better guardrails and the diversification. Absolutely, in Southeast Asia. So we have one exit question for you, both Mark and me, sure. and we would be derelict in our responsibilities because we have been spending all of our time talking about one totalitarian dictatorship. We have to ask you about another. So where is Kim Jong-un? I can answer this one with great clarity. I enlisted in the Air Force in 1980. Uh, I was a Korean linguist. Uh, My job was to do all I could to understand North Korea. Between 1980 and 1994, Kim Il-sung died three times. (laughs) I was uh, on uh, K-1 highway in South Korea uh, in June of 1994 when Kim Il-sung finally did when he finally left this world. And um, it took three tries. I'm not saying who knows is the point Uh, until you see the processions like we saw with Kim Jong-il on 17 December 2011. Until we see that these guys disappear, Uh, you know, Xi Jinping disappeared before 2012 for like 60 days and everybody was wondering where he was. That's just how it works in authoritarian regimes, whether it's for the drama to create attention, whether it's because there's some sort of reckoning. Or maybe because, you know, Kim Jong-un, who is clearly unhealthy, is, you know, somehow rehabilitating or worse. I don't know. But in these closed societies, you won't know until you see them announce it. Well, we'll be waiting for him to be embalmed behind a glass case. (laughs) The moment can't come too soon. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much for sharing the time with us. We know how busy you are. Thank you for your service. We're really grateful. Well, thank you for the opportunity and uh, stay in touch. Thank you. Bye. So 
Danny, the Chinese increasingly sound like Baghdad Bob. You okay, who the, is Baghdad Bob? Baghdad Bob, for those who uh, who don't remember, the start of the Iraq War was the Iraqi military spokesman who was literally standing in the streets of Baghdad with reporters in a press conference saying, there are no American troops in Baghdad while American troops were passing behind him. <laughs> you know, it's like, like no virus in Wuhan. Never, never. never. We, we're not responsible for this. I mean, the Chinese have just been, you know, almost to the point of caricature, been in this disinformation. The U.S. Army created this. It came from American soldiers who came to Wuhan for sporting events. Uh, it's just preposterous. And I just, I think it's a sign of weakness. I think this regime is brittle. I think that uh, Xi Jinping is worried about survival. And so he's lashing out of the world and he's lying to his people because he's afraid that they're not going to take it anymore. I'm not sure you're right. I believe, as we said, you know, in our conversation with General Stilwell, I believe that China is much weaker than certainly than it wants to be and than a lot of people think it is. I had a conversation with one of our diplomats in Geneva today, and he said that Chinese are overplaying their hands. But I think there's a long leap between where China is now and Xi Jinping really being at risk. What I worry about more is that they will continue to overplay their hand. They'll think, you know what? Now is the time to distract from all of this to the Chinese people. Let's invade Taiwan. That's what I worry about, that they are going to go looking for something to rally their people around the notion that they don't have as much money as they used to. They're not buying those Dolce & Gabbana bags that they like so much. But on the other hand, we are reuniting Taiwan, split us Taiwan with the Chinese mainland. Xi Jinping is someone who has changed the character of the Chinese Communist Party and turned it into a cult of personality. And there's some probably some discontent with Xi amongst his own cadre. And if there's public outrage over the Wuhan virus and his handling of this, and all of a sudden the U.S. is blaming them and maybe suing, <laughs> uh, causing that problems, or simply American companies are pulling their supply chains out and moving to other countries, and the economy is tanking, that could cause a lot of problems for Xi Jinping. It could. I also have been thinking about whether or not there shouldn't be some question about some of these Chinese companies listing on the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ, because there's really no reason that they should be open to investment from Americans. We should squeeze them on every front. I do agree about that. You know, it's funny. One of the other things that they've said that resonated with me was that we are not prepared, that you know, since the fall of the Soviet Union, people have really forgotten what disinformation was like. You know, it used to be that in the old days, the State Department put out an annual report on disinformation, and it was focused almost exclusively on the Soviet Union. But the Soviets made a pretty aggressive effort in the days before social media to propagate the notion that the Americans invented AIDS. Uh, Mm -hmm. that there was something called the ethnic bomb. We always used to laugh about that, that that the Americans were trying to kill off African populations that that might have been more sympathetic to the Soviet Union. This is really another version of that, and we are not prepared. They try to manipulate our population the way they manipulate their own population. Right, and we're not, and I would say that especially the younger generations who don't have that history but who do overwhelmingly occupy social media, TikTok, for example, are not prepared for that at all. No, absolutely. The, you mean the generation that thinks socialism isn't such a bad thing? Th- that that generation, uh, all those sweet yeah. Bernie Okay, cows, boomer. That, you know, if yeah. you don't know what the Soviet Union is, yeah. if you don't know who Karl Marx was, if you don't understand this sort of command of information, you are not going to be protected 
when you propagate information on social media? Well, I will, in closing, I will say that if there's anything that would wake up people to the dangers of totalitarian socialism, it's being locked in their homes by the coronavirus, because maybe this generation will wake up to the danger that these totalitarian communist regimes pose, um, and that'll have some impact on at least, maybe not on domestic embrace of socialism, but certainly on our understanding of uh, the foreign policy threat it poses. Well, if we can rip their eyes away from Chinese-owned TikTok for long enough... Perhaps they'll pay attention. Folks, thanks for listening. As always, stay safe and don't hesitate to send us suggestions. We'll see you soon. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 